So here's the question as we uh, continue here this morning. What sort of real-life, practical, even permanent difference does grace truly make in your life today as a believer in Christ? What difference has God's grace made in you? I believe this is the big question looming large and hanging over the entire second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In a world full of good and evil, of light and darkness, of virtue and vice, how does authentic belief, which you might say is the key word of Ephesians 1 to 3, belief in the Lord Jesus and his work of redemption change our behavior which is what Paul is addressing in chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians. That behavior both in us, but also around us in the church. How does the gospel transform your life and mine? That's what Paul wants to address this morning. And so from our text, Ephesians 5, 3 through verse 14, we're going to see together that the apostle Paul now presses on in this divinely inspired description of true discipleship, of the urgent real-world implications of putting off the old self represented perhaps in that brown, grimy garment in the slide behind me, and putting on the new self depicted in the white, righteous robes of Christ himself that he puts upon us. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 24, we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We can't be different on this side of faith in Christ. Paul's depiction of the inner change, which is what Ephesians 4 is all about, is now quickly followed upon by this striking description of vital outward change as well in Ephesians chapter 5. He's going to go on to various relationships in the latter portion of chapter 5 and in chapter 6 also. And his point is simply this. That because we are in Christ Jesus by grace and through faith today, amen? Isn't that wonderful that we are? Because we are, Paul says, we are now commanded to look like our spiritual father. We are commanded to be imitators of God as we looked at two weeks ago from Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And we should walk in the light. He's going to describe what that light is. Producing the sort of spirit-enabled, obedient fruit of righteousness and holiness that both reflects the goodness of God and truly pleases the Lord himself. And not, this is where we're going to go today, not by participating in those satanically orchestrated, devilishly induced works of darkness, which reek of sulfur, And they smell of selfishness and of sin. And they provoke the just and holy wrath of God. Beloved, those deeds should not be named among us. In short, Paul is simply saying, those who claim to be devoted to Christ are called to be different from the world. There's your one sentence summary for the morning. Look, as God's people, that is the church, you and I, we are God's people We are called to live in the light. That is, we are to shine brightly amid the dark 
deep darkness of this world, even as our brother and conference pastor Ralph Soper challenged us last Sunday from Philippians chapter 2. We are to shine as lights in this crooked and depraved generation. We are not to look like the world. We are not to act like the world. Why? Because God himself is holy. Friend, God is holy. God is perfectly pure and completely good. Even as the writer John says in 1 John chapter 1, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Therefore, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so, brothers and sisters, because God is holy, we too must be holy. You see, God's work of salvation by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ changes us from the inside out. There's new life leading to new light. We are declared or made holy in order that we might become and be holy. And it's not an option for us. It is a destiny. It is an eventuality. It is not an elective. And listen, remember, Paul has been talking about this walk all through Ephesians. In fact, so far we've learned that we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, verse 2. But right now, through faith in Christ, we are empowered and enabled, Ephesians 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Because of grace. And more than that, we are called to walk in newness of life that is described in the latter portion of Ephesians chapter 4. And here it is described as a walk of love in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, and a walk of light in verses 3 to 14, and a walk of wisdom in just a matter of weeks. How is your walk? How is your walk? Well, friends, God's grace comes to us, not only from God, but it brings with it a powerful and wonderful power to change us, yes, on the inside, but it also must change us on the outside, both in our affections and in our actions, both in our beliefs and in our behaviors, such that God is pleased and Christ is praised. One of my favorite Charles Wesley Hymns as oh for a thousand tongues to sing. Just a few stanzas, oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King and the triumphs of His grace. The fifth stanza says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And that last stanza, so now thy blessed name I love, thou will would ever be mine. Had I a thousand hearts to give, my Lord, they would all be thine. If I could live a thousand lives, may they be lived for your pleasure. So friends, with this short introduction to the text firmly in mind, let me just give you a little orientation to this passage because we're going to focus primarily on the first point simply today. Ephesians 5, 3 to 14 really is divided into two basic points. There is what not to do, and there is what to do. Pretty simple outline for us this morning. There are those things that we must 
in the gospel avoid or evade. And rather, on the other hand, beginning in verse 7, there are those things which we are to activate and to engage through the power of the gospel. And again, today we're going to focus, and all God's people said amen, on the first point alone. Because we are right now recipients of divine grace, Paul says we are to seek to please the Lord and not to please ourselves. How are you doing with that lately? Whatever you do, Paul says over in Colossians 3, do it heartily as for the Lord and, and not for men. For from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We aren't to please people. We aren't to please ourselves. We are to please the Lord. So because of Christ's great love for us, we are right now today enabled. We are gloriously equipped to exhibit new fruit that Paul describes as fruit of light. And he goes on to describe in verse 9 that it is good and right and true, and we'll look at that next time. And listen, we are to do this instead of engaging in what we are to avoid, which is the focus today, that I'm calling deeds of darkness. Paul vividly portrays these in graphic terms under two categories. There are filthy actions or filthy deeds, and there are dirty mouths. Dirty deeds and dirty mouths is what Paul is describing here. And just remember his context. Where is Paul writing to? He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is sort of like ancient Philadelphia, modern Philadelphia. What's prominent now polluted. Ephesus was a city of more than 300,000 people, a city bustling with political and cultural and religious enticements and entrapments, including that world-famous temple to Artemis or the Latin Diana, and her host of cultic prostitutes. And Pastor Paul writes to the church pointing out the incompatibility with sexual immorality and raunchy or racy talk for those who claim through those lips to love Jesus. You can't look at things the way the world looks at them. You can't talk like the way the world talks if you profess to know and to love Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I know I need to hear this message again. Grace makes a change. So instead, just again next Sunday, as those who are now commanded to walk as children of light, Christians and Christian churches should seek to expose those who conduct themselves in such immoral, ungodly, and unholy ways to the light of the gospel of King Jesus. That is that we are to expose them in judgment and ridicule, but rather we are to expose them to truth by transformed living and by love. That's what the word expose means, and we'll unpack that more next week. In other words, we are to gospelize our culture, not to join in with our culture, not to blend in with society. We are to lift them up out of the mire of sin rather than being dragged down into the pits of depravity. Each Christian and each local congregation is to be a source of light, pushing against the darkness of this present evil age. How are we doing in that? Are we joining in the uh, office 
water cooler talk of just laughing at the latest filthy joke. Should it never be? And then Paul is finally in verse 14 going to give really kind of an invitation. Uh, Some churches give an invitation every week. Paul gives an invitation here. He gives an invitation of grace to arise to your senses and follow Jesus Christ. So that's our brief orientation. Let's focus this morning, really point number one, and it's our sole point this morning, the dark deeds that Christians or believers are commanded to avoid. What are they and why are they so sinister and dangerous? Well, again, observe with me in verses three through six that Paul identifies by name actually six deeds, six sinister characteristics or activities really actually in two groups of three. There will be three activities and three words that get to the idea of one's speech that are completely unbecoming, completely out of step with our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. These sins must not be named among us, not just the Ephesians, among us. Listen to God's word once again. But in contrast to that walk of love from verses 1 and 2 in Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, Paul writes, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. We've already met all six characteristics already in the text. Which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. A different tune should be on these lips. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, praise God for his trustworthy and very much needed word for us. This morning, I want to try to work backwards through these uh, four verses with us this morning. Because effectively, Paul is saying that to the church, loves, back in verses 1 and 2, loves self-centered counterfeits have no place or position in the church of Jesus Christ. That's effectively what Paul is saying here. Why? Why is sexual immorality and impurity and even just crude joking out of place in the house of Christ? Well, for a couple reasons. Namely, the wrath of God is coming upon the world because of these very sins. So if the wrath of God is coming because of these, how can we participate in them? How can we engage in them? What's more, if we are in Christ, our very sin has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. And as the writer of Hebrews says, how dare we trample underfoot again the blood of Jesus, God's own son. We can't, we can't do this. And listen further, enduring wrath being the object of God's wrath is not your destiny if you're in Christ. Rather, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen to that. Because of grace, we are adopted. We are his beloved children. We are precious and sealed in his love. We are not 
to participate in these evil deeds. They don't belong to us. We who are objects of God's redeeming love cannot possibly roll out the welcome mat to the sinful deeds and rebellious behaviors of the world because grace covers a multitude of sins, but grace changes the course of our lives. As God's saints, and going back to verse 1 of Ephesians 1, saints are who we are. He says there to the saints, those holy ones, those ones set apart from the world and unto Christ, who are faithful in Christ, you are now God's people, precious and chosen in the gospel. We've died to sin according to Romans 6 and verse 2. How can we therefore live in it any longer? Now, if this was the only place where Paul mentioned these sinister deeds, maybe we could say, well... You know, we could, we, it's not that bad. It just mentioned one time in Scripture, but friends, it is not. This is not the only, Ephesians is not the only book. This is not the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks in such condemnatory ways of illicit immoral actions and of slimy speech, which is what it really is, in such startlingly clear terms. For example, and you may want to turn over with me, although the words will be on the screen. The apostle writes of the urgent, even ethical implications of the gospel in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just jot some of these down and look them up later on. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 and following says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. We'll come back to that idea of deception in a moment. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You might say, well, yeah, that's, that's uh, the neighbors on that side of the street. That's not me. What does Paul say next? And such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, how precious is that last verse, verse 11. And such were some of you. In other words, you are no longer defined or to be described by these characteristics. A few verses later in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 6 Paul gives a further reason why this gross immorality is incompatible with our profession of faith in Jesus. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, we're not just spiritually connected to Jesus. Our flesh matters. We are a part of Jesus' body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul says, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Paul would later write to Timothy, who pastored this same congregation in Ephesus, flee youthful passions, but pursue righteousness and faith and love along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
within you whom you have from God. Listen, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The label on the back of your life and mine reads, Made again by God. He loves us. Paul says in another passage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and following. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Flesh there meaning those that really are still entrenched in their depravity and unregenerate state. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Are we guilty of any of these things? Absolutely, we know we are. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let your eye go back to that word, those who do such things. Now, that is, those who are defined by such things. Those who persistently, habitually, characteristically uh, give themselves to these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to me, and this is important. Just hold on a second, Pastor. Are you saying that Paul is, is actually saying here that Christians who, who may occasionally stumble into sin, even some of these big sins, somehow forfeit their salvation? No, I'm not saying that. There's a difference between succumbing to temptation and being planted in rebellion. There's a huge difference. As Peter would say later on in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. There are only two categories. There is the righteous and there is the unrighteous. And Jesus alone fills up the righteous category. Everybody else, we fall in the unrighteous category. We do unrighteous things until Christ comes and invades our life and gives us a new appetite and a new ability to do the things of God. And then we are called by faith to walk in His righteousness. Listen, spiritual maturity is not synonymous with perfection. It is rather godly perseverance. The spiritually, most spiritually mature people I've met in life are those who feel the greatest weight of their sin. They are so sensitive to God's holiness that they cower in his presence, just, Lord, deliver me from this body of death. It's not perfection that Paul or the scriptures are commanding. It's persevering to Christ, keeping our eyes resolute on him. At the same time, at the same time, neither does Paul here leave us with the impression that such sexual immorality and greed and other things are no big deal for believers. Oh, grace, grace, God's grace, it covers a multitude of sins, pastor. It's not that big a deal. Oh, it is, friend. We are to leave no quarter for rebellious affections or rebellious actions. We are to root them out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are to work hand in hand with God himself to deliver these unrighteous thoughts to the very foot of Christ. This is what it means to live in the light. This is describing the life of sanctification. This is what it means to grow in holiness. To take every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. 
It is to no longer be defined or described by how we used to live according to the patterns of this world. Now, Paul says in a parallel passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, and if you write in your margins, I would encourage you to have Colossians 3 earmarked next to Ephesians 5. These two texts go hand in hand. Paul describes it this way. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It sounds just like Ephesians 5. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Do you see the the prescription? Anger, wrath, malice, and slander, obscene talk that we'll come to in a moment from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Again, faith, and this is timely for this weekend, faith means that we have made a declaration of war against the flesh and against remaining and indwelling sin in us. This is our independence day, not to do whatever we want to do, but to finally do what God has designed us to do. May we revolt against rebellion itself, against the tyranny of sin in our lives, and we need each other to do it. But our secret weapon, because on our own we will always be overwhelmed, our secret weapon is the Holy Spirit himself. That is the only hope we have for holiness, is the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. So the wrath of God is one reason why these descriptions, and I'm going to give you a definition of each one in just a moment, why these are not to be named among us. But there's a second warning in this text, if you noticed it, and it has to do with the word deception. Deception. See, verse 6 says, And let no one seek to deceive you with empty words. Might say, Don't jump on a sinking ship and be on the lookout for spiritual saboteurs within the church. Those that might say it really isn't such a big deal if you look or talk like that. In reality, And this is also quite interesting. Paul himself had prognosticated, had personally predicted this kind of spiritual deceit and deception just four or five years earlier in Acts chapter 20 in this particular church. Remember what Dr. Luke writes, the words of Paul, Acts 20 verse 29, I know, Paul says on that shore with the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And notice, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. Do you see the warning? The warning this morning is not just that the world is bad or that sex is bad. That's not the warning this morning. The warning this morning is watch out even in here. That some might say to you, you know, it's really not too bad if you or you say, watch out in here. You see, as alluring as the world's temptations are, and frankly, they are quite alluring, aren't they? Paul says here, he reminds us that one of the greatest threats we face in the church is internal deception. Satan already has the world. What he wants is to come after us. 
And so Paul says, watch out from within. Watch out for internal decay, inward rot, inward compromise. Those who might come along or rise up into uh, eldership even in this church and, and, and say, oh, pastor, lighten up. Oh, oh, church, just relax a little bit. God isn't concerned about what you look at or, or with what you do with your bodies or the kind of language that we incorporate into our vocabulary. Get real. Get with the times. It's quite okay. Watch out for that kind of person. Neither doctrinal nor Ethical compromise, compromise has any place in this church. Be it from me or anyone else, run me right out the door if you ever hear it from me. The person, those, those who don't mind flirting with the world have no right to be leading in the church. Both spiritual and moral compromise is a cancer that eats our holiness away from the inside out. Watch out for it. That's what Paul's saying. Let me illustrate this practically and personally for you. This sort of deception hit very close to our family, our extended family, just a number of years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. My wife's cousin, by the name of Brian, who was a young man just out of college, very spiritually seeking, got connected, and you can go to the next slide, got connected with a a man by the name of E.C. Fulcher Jr., who... Uh, was the founder and teacher of a ministry called the Truth House outside of uh, Maryland. By the way, if you, ever, if you ever see a picture of Pastor Dan with my face in the clouds on our website or on church uh, materials, I better be dead. I better be dead already. That's one surefire sign of a cult, friends, when their leader has to be immortalized on their literature. Do not... Be deceived. But what this uh, man would teach is that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. What really matters is what you believe in your mind. And so long as you swallow his truth and you come and show up Friday night, Saturday, and Sundays, you're no longer allowed to go home and, and spend time with your mother on her birthday. You're no longer allowed to celebrate Christmas with your family. Just come and listen to his teaching. Give the money that he asked you to give. You're good with God. That was what this man te- taught. But you see the seductive appeal to it is he told a bunch of young people, it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. Go ahead and have premarital sex if you want. Go ahead and live with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Friends, this we know is contrary to the very word of God, and yet this was the teaching or the doctrine this man espoused, and our cousin swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, and is still in that cult today. I've spent several times with Brian, it's been a number of years, but several times with him, pleading with him from God's word to repent of that sin and come home to Christ. I'd ask you to pray for him as well. So it happens today is the point. I'm reminded of the story that Richard Koken says in his commentary of a wealthy man who owned a luxury yacht and he needed a new helmsman to skipper this particular vessel. After gaining several of the best applicants for this prize position, the yacht owner asked each of the men to join him on his boat one weekend to demonstrate their skills on the open water. And he said to them, I want a sailor with great skill who will be able to take me and my friends anywhere I want to go at any time I want to go. And the man that I choose is going to be very handsomely rewarded. Sounds good to me. Well, each of the three men took their turn in showcasing their skill in the harbor. The first hot shot got behind the, uh, the, the boat 
apparatus there, and he sailed that yacht at uh, top speeds, coming within 50 feet of the rocky cliffs, and all the people on the boat gasp and awed at the courage and the valor of that particular uh, helmsman. The second helmsman was even more skillful. He said, oh yeah, you think that's good, 50 feet, I can do 25 feet, and he just barely skimmed those rocks as well. And again, leaving the passengers aboard breathless and in rapt attention and perhaps a little bit nervous when the third helmsman came to uh, the, the steering wheel. I'm not sure what a boat steering wheel is called, so I'm going to go with that. What's that? Helm. There you go, the helm. Ah, helmsman, thank you very much. Well, the third and final candidate calmly steered the yacht out into the very center of the harbor. Not at any breakneck pace or speed, just a nice, easy tour right through the center of the harbor, allowing all the people on board to look and enjoy the sights that they had previously been ducking from because they saw the cliff. To everyone's great surprise, the owner gave the job to the third driver. He says, you are all amazingly skillful, but my yacht is precious to me. And I don't want a helmsman who is so confident as to be tempted to steer it within a few feet of crashing upon the rocks. One slight mistake would spell disaster. I want a man who will take my precious yacht into the open water for me to enjoy the safety and beauty that is there. I think you get the point. See, friend, when it comes to our bodies, God's will and God's word is not trying to keep us from pleasure. It's trying to keep us from destruction. It's trying to keep us from destruction. See, this is why we have fireplaces in our homes. Just imagine a well-stoked fire, not in a fireplace and all the damage that it can do, but rather a well-stoked fire in a fireplace both gives light to a room, it is able to feed a family, and uh, it just it helps warm the home. That's the purpose of the fire in the home. But you take the fire out of the fireplace and all you have now is danger and almost certain destruction. You see, brothers and sisters, boundaries are blessings. They are not burdens. Boundaries are blessings and they are not burdens. That same commentator, uh, Dr. Richard Koken, said, God is not against sex. He invented it as the thrilling and intimate glue for the lifelong union of one man and one woman for one lifelong marriage. God is simply against misusing or abusing his beautiful gift. Because sex is intended as the intense display of his wisdom in bringing people under the blessing of Christ's loving rule. So what are these dark deeds as we close? And I close with the definition of each of them that we might understand the threats that are near us. Just what exactly are these dark deeds and how do we overcome them? Well, firstly, again, in verse 3, Paul says, but sexual immorality. This is the word porneia in the Greek text. It is used some 25 times in the New Testament very often. It is the most frequently of all these words we're going to find in this passage as they are used in the New Testament. Pornea, you hear the word pornography with that word, don't you? This word does not just mean those images that one might be able to see, but rather it refers to all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Be it adultery, prostitution, 
incestuous relationships, homosexual activity, all forms of sexual engagement outside of the marriage covenant are captured in this idea of porneia. All of these activities, Paul is saying, are out of bounds for the believer in Christ. God has given us a fireplace for the passions of our flesh, and it is called marriage. Warm your home. Enjoy it in that context and in that context alone. The Bible says in many places, including 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 and 5, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. You think God doesn't care about how you use your body? It says it right here. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Tony Moreta, one of my favorite commentators in this series, uh, has said, your sexual sin problem is fundamentally a worship problem. That's why adultery is so often attached to idolatry in the Bible. Your sexual sin problem, he says, is fundamentally a worship problem. Our affections are disordered. We are prioritizing our pleasure against God's praise, over God's praise. So sexual immorality, as I'll say this for the other ones as well, is akin to taking a gift from God and making that gift our God. Don't make the the temptations of the flesh your God. They do not satisfy. They do not satisfy. So porneia is the first dark deed we must be aware of. Secondly, it is the word uh, um, uh, catharsis, but ah, catharsia, ah, catharsia. The word catharsis means purification or cleanness. To put the uh, little character a or ah before it means to negate that. So it has the idea of pollution or pollutedness. And this refers to the impurity or all impurity, referring to everything that pollutes the heart and the mind and the body. This word seems to specifically include in the Ephesian context, those cultic practices with prostitution happened in Corinth, happened in Ephesus and other places as well. Moral uncleanness. In fact, this same word is used by Paul again over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, where Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, he's writing to the church, folks, when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Again, sex itself is a gift of God, but it makes a terrible God itself. Third, it is the Greek word uh, pleonexia. It is translated in the ESV as covetous, in some other translations as greed. It is simply greed. This word is used some ten times in the New Testament, and it appears here more likely to be uh, attached to these pleasures of the flesh. It's, It's really a greed for pleasure. It's a greed for domination over people's bodies. One writer said, covetousness is mentioned alongside of sexual immorality because sexual immorality manifests a twisted love of self. I want to control your body. I want to use you. A willingness to take that which does not belong to us. This writer says, the bodies of men and women belong to their lawful spouses. 
So we commit a sort of theft if we sleep with one to whom we are not married. Such thievery is the logical end then of greed and expresses itself in an ungodly lust for material possessions as well. Again, this word is also found in Colossians 3 verse 5, linking greed and covetousness with actual idolatry. Because as Chuck Swindoll says, greed makes a God of what it seeks to possess. Greed makes a God of what it seeks to possess. Again, idolatry, friends, is really taking something, anything that is good and making it God and worshiping it. That is what idolatry is. Well, Paul says that these sorts of dirty deeds must not be named among us. Shouldn't even be a hint of these among us. But then he moves to our mouths. It's not just what we do, it's what we say as well that actually describes this sort of darkness. The next word here, no filthiness. Aeskrotes uh, is the Greek word here. It can also be translated obscenity or vulgarity even. Dr. James Boyce interestingly says this term is a bridge word linking both improper actions with indecent or illicit speech. You know, sometimes one of the clearest indicators that somebody is compromising themselves physically is that they are compromising themselves in their speech. They're allowing themselves to flirt with their tongue, and then they begin to flirt with their bodies. It should not be so among us. Another writer said this word refers to speech that is, is in defiance of social or moral standards, with uh, resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. Again, it is le- lending one's voice to vulgarity, obscenity, filthiness. Do we allow ourselves to engage in filthy speech? Well, there's two more, and these are linked together. Foolish talk, morologia, moron speech. Moronic speech is actually the word there in the Greek. And eutrepolia, which is crude joking or being potty-mouthed, really. Crude joking. John Stott says that all three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversations and speech. I'm glad to report that I haven't passed uh, anyone in the hallways here at Trinity (laughs) that have been engaging in this kind of speech, but you know what? We're not always together, are we? We're not always there with one another at the workplace or at the schoolyard. Man, if you would have met me in my middle school years, kids, listen, if you claim Christ as your Lord, let your tongue be as praise around your, your classmates. But I had a filthy mouth in middle school. Don't let yourself be tempted Uh, to try to blend in with the world, let them see Christ shine in you. Paul's point is that we should not indulge, we should not invite, we should not engage in any inappropriate sexual, sexually explicit activities outside of marriage or innuendo in our speech. Instead, let our lips be filled with thanksgiving for all that he has done for us in Christ. Well, some of you that are on the more mature scale of life may remember Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. In 1964, as the tides of morality in America really began to change, the Supreme Court of the United States was wrestling over an understanding of what was truly obscene versus what would be protected under free speech laws in the United States. And 
as I understand it, because I wasn't around, but uh, Justice Stewart, a conservative Republican, was the one who said, famously now, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced as pornography, but I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. See, here's the deal, friends. You and I know what is immoral and what is indecent when we see it or when we say it. You don't need me to go ahead and give you the 25 things you can't do or say. You know what honors the Lord and what doesn't. And God would have us to walk away from this passage saying, God, you are the Lord of my life and you are the Lord of my lips. Convict me and reprove me and help me to walk in ways that are holy before you anytime I do something that is embarrassing to the one who died on the cross for me. Paul says, dirty deeds and dirty mouths do not belong in God's house. We are that house Paul has said in Ephesians 2, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We are to be a holy temple. So what if you've fallen? Repent. So what if you're struggling? Be accountable. Talk to your spouse if you're struggling with something. Talk to your pastor. Talk to, you, to an elder Find a Christian brother or for ladies, find a Christian sister who will pray with you and who will ask you the hard questions, who will walk the road of faith with you. Because holiness is not just your concern, it's our concern together. We need each other to glorify the Lord in this way. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father God, again, this is not a passage that uh, when... I saw that it was next up. I just rejoiced, Lord. No, I, I leaned into you, Lord. Oh, God, we need you to love us by speaking words of life and truth to us. And all your word is life and truth. But, Lord, this is a passage that really does hit so close to home for all of us, but perhaps for some in particular. Maybe for a young person who is beginning to experience different emotions and feelings, and Lord, they, they are listening or they're watching things that they should not. Oh God, give them grace to look to you for help, to talk to mom and dad, to reach out to a friend or a pastor or an elder. Oh Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who, who, who really needs redemption in this area, no one knows what they're dealing with. Lord, you know. Help them to know your love for them. Help them to know the freedom that is found not in denying or covering this up, but in confessing it before Jesus. There is true freedom to be found at the foot of Christ. Oh God, thank you for bringing this again to the forefront for us today. And we want to glorify you by walking the light of your truth. And we'll praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.